for those of you who don't know me, I am Brenda Turney. I'm the Director of Alumni and Community Engagement. And it is my great pleasure to moderate the panel this evening. So we're going to move now into the main event, which is talking with some of UWA's fabulous researchers at the Albany campus who are going to help us understand our oceans a little bit better, the, the important role that they play in our lives and in our futures. And so I'm going to open with asking each of them to introduce themselves, because they can do that probably better than I can, and also talk about the work that they do, why it's important to the world and to you, what's exciting about it for them, what's the most exciting thing about it, and what difference you're hoping to make in the work that you do. So Mark, we'll start with you. Uh, sure. So my name is Mark Buckley. I did my PhD at the University of Western Australia and finished it in 2016. Uh, I did my work on the hydrodynamics of nearshore waves on coral reefs. So originally I had a real wave focus um, on coral reefs. And there you have these very steep slopes in high bottom roughness, and it really changes how the nearshore wave dynamics behave um, compared to sandy beach environments where a lot of the previous work has been done. And now I've moved down to Albany and I'm trying to extend that work I did to the very complex shorelines you guys have down here in the very large waves. So Mark, why, why is that important? Why do we want to know that? So, <laughs> uh, from a surfing perspective. No. <laughs> Not from a, well, maybe from a surfing uh, perspective. The way I generally try to sell my work as uh, like coastal hazard analysis. So if you want to build any kind of coastal structure, if you want to know how to manage the coastline, you have to be able to understand these processes. Um, the most fundamental is the wave processes on the coast. Hello, everybody. My name's Kirsty Alexander. I am at the beginning of um, my PhD. Uh, my research is investigating the um, dolphin populations within uh, the Albany harbours with a view to... we, we need to be with a view to understanding um, what we have in terms of diversity, um, how they use the harbours and how important the harbours are to them. The reason that um, that is important is that, um, well there's, there's many, but conservation of top predators has, or reinstatement of top predators has actually been identified as um, one um, way to improve the resilience of ecosystems in the face of climate change. The other thing that is pretty important, I guess, if you're a dolphin, is that um, when it comes to dolphin populations, how they actually um, are structured and how they might use an area is really, really variable. And in, the, in many, many cases, particularly environments like ours, the populations are as actually residents, so it means that they don't have anywhere else to go. They can't go anywhere else. And you can imagine that um, means that what we do can make quite a big difference. They are also, I guess, um, important in terms of socially and culturally, as well as environmentally and economically too. I mean, they, su they support a year-round um, ecotourism industry. The other thing is that top predators actually have a really important role in maintaining populations of other species, including commercially valuable ones, such as uh, fish, for example. They also have a really, really interesting role. I spent a long time talking to people about why seagrass was important, for example, 
And people sometimes are, mm, yeah, it's really, really great. You talk about uh, and how, why you should do things to conserve seagrass. If you talk to people about dolphins with the same aim, the reaction is quite different. And effectively, if we um, make good decisions based on good science about conserving that particular approach, that particular species, we effectively meet the conservation needs of the rest of those um, perhaps less rock star parts of our ecosystems. That's awesome. Who doesn't like dolphins? Is there anybody in the room who doesn't like <laughs> dolphins? Yeah, there's a few. So Tabani is, is um, just for those of you who don't know, has just arrived here today. <laughs> So, Tobani, tell us about what your research is. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Tobani, and I've just arrived. I've also just started my PhD. My PhD is focusing on wave prediction. So, in a nutshell, wave prediction is about taking measurements at a location and then looking at how the sea surface will look like at another location downstream. So, uh, that would help uh, wave energy converters to uh, effectively convert wave energy to electricity once we know how the surface will look like, um, say, two or more wavelengths in advance. So um, the connection between wave waves and wave energy converters is just stochastic um, nonlinear models. So there's a heavy use of statistical models and numerical models, of course. So that's what I'm just doing uh, here. Great, great. And Vipka. Oh, there is some sharing of microphones going on, by the way. <laughs> That's all right, we can share. We're all in the same building, after all. Um, my name is Vip Gabling. Um, I have a background in science, but not in the marine science. Um, so I did my PhD at ANU in Canberra in neuroscience. Uh, I worked on color vision in marsupials. Uh, then I moved into marine science, which is a complete coincidence, uh, in Tasmania. And then I came to Perth uh, to work in astronomy. There is no connection other than loving to talk about science and um, doing a lot of public and school outreach. And uh, yes, then I had the opportunity to uh, join UWA uh, last year, early last year, and I moved to Albany in April. So I'm marking one and a half years as an Albany resident, and I've bought a house, and my kids go to school. And um, yeah, so I'm the center manager for the Wave Energy Research Center, and we have... Um, now occupied the latest addition to the UWA campus, uh, which is now called the Great Southern Marine Research Facility. Uh, I hope you've all enjoyed the big signage we've put on the front of the building and uh, as you grab your coffee at Sterling Terrace. And yeah, so we, we are the team plus a couple of others. Um, so there is genuine activity and we are aspiring to be uh, a knowledge hub in all sorts of offshore ocean engineering and ocean renewables. Great, thank you. And Adi, last but not least. Okay, uh, hello. Uh, my name is Adi Kurniawan, and I'm originally from Indonesia. I have uh, a bit of international background, so I've lived in different countries. Uh, I did my studies first in Singapore, and then I did my PhD in Norway, and then worked for a few years in England, and then Denmark, and then now uh, in Australia. So I, I've just joined the university um, about over a month ago, so I'm pretty new here. And I work on wave energy, looking uh, particularly on the interaction of devices with the wave. So I take the wave, um, the measurements that Mark did, and as an input, and then I develop a mathematical model to 
predict the behavior of this device, how much power it can produce, and so on. Great, thank you. So I'm going to start, Mark, with a question to you. And uh, can you tell us why this work is important? Why Albany for this work? Why is this the right place to do the work that you're doing? Why is it important to the community? But why also is the community important to WA and to the country and the rest of the world? Sure. I'll just speak for myself and then let the others fill in. Uh, from my work, what I do is trying to predict what happens when waves reach the shoreline. Uh, and that's very much complicated by irregular coastlines and large waves. And down in Albany, you have this unique opportunity of very, very large waves close to a city center, um, which really allows the opportunity to go out there, study these waves, uh, an environment that you wouldn't see in other places. Um, and we can kind of do work to try to understand these waves. They've typically, similar work's been done in the US and Europe, but under very small wave conditions uh, and nice sandy beaches. Now we're trying to transform that way, uh, those kind of research to the very complicated coastlines that you have down in Albany in the very large waves. So it gives us a unique opportunity to study these very large waves. Um, and I'll kind of, I guess the community-wise, um, I guess a lot of what we can do is we can provide tools to the community to help understand their coastline. So we're trying to work with the community to be able to better predict what will happen um, if different coastal management um, projects go through, what the outcomes of them will be, and just understand the coastline better. Um, and it's been a great community to work in. Um, and then the others can speak from more of a wave energy perspective on how it's a great site. <laughs> yeah, so um, speaking about the potential of wave energy um, globally, the general consensus, I think, is around two terawatt. Uh, to have an idea how much there is, is, is enough to power two billion homes. So that is the theoretical potential. Of course, practically, it's maybe much less than that, but still, it is a significant amount. Um, and speaking about Australia in particular, uh, I think the country is blessed with some of the, um, yeah, some of this, the world potential, a great share of the world potential. And what is interesting for Australia or um, places in the Southern Hemisphere is that there is less seasonal variation, so the waves is more stable throughout the year compared to Europe, for example, or yeah, places in the Northern Hemisphere. So there is, of course, an advantage. And I think also speaking about Western Australia in general, um, I think we are blessed with such a long coastline and ocean energy. We have tidal energy potential in the north and wave energy down here in the south, so I think it's a great, yeah, great potential. I might just sort of jump on the, the little question, why Albany? And, um, you know, admittedly, you could start a research centre at a metropolitan campus and you could do your research because, I mean, you know, a lot of these guys sit at their desks in front of your, their computers and use the Posi Supercomputer Centre, for example. So a lot of the work doesn't need the environment as such. Mark's work a bit more so. Um, so he heads out, he does field work. But... This centre has a huge mandate in actually becoming part of this community. So we've actually gone through, you know, great length in establishing, your, you know, having this building refurbished for us, moving in there, establishing a link to the community. So, um, I mean, we're funded through a Royalties for Region programme after all. So this is the, so the regional development aspect of what we do 
and like local upskilling and you know adding residence um, with um, a, an area of expertise and an, a range of skills that can be applied to other problems that might range al along the coastline and, and in the region. That is a huge focus apart from wave energy, which was our initial funding reason. Great, thank you. The Jennifer mentioned in her opening that um, UWA, as part of Vision 2030, is committed to addressing some of the grand challenges, including environmental sustainability, and particularly through leadership in Indian Ocean Rim. So, Adi, I'm going to ask you to start uh, the conversation on this question. Local as well as global partnerships are important in that, in doing that. Can you speak to how your work fits with that university vision? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm a qualified person to answer this question, but <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, looking at the, um, the Indian Ocean Rim, which stretches from, from the west, from South Africa, and then all, all up, and then circling, and then down to Australia. I think, I mean, looking at these countries, um, Australia is, um, I think, is one of the most developed, if not the most developed, and so it has the potential to, to become a leader. And we have, like, the world's major economies, like India and Indonesia, and who are less developed than, than, than us. Um, yeah, so I, I think strategically we have uh, the role to, to, to become a, a leader and to show how, yeah, how, how, how we harness the, the resource of the ocean sustainably and, and so on, which I, I think these countries, these big countries um, are still struggling with. So having come from Indonesia yeah. and then now being in Australia, do you see a big difference in where things are at as far as... Yeah, well, of course, I mean, in Indonesia, we have a large number of people. Population is around close to 300 million. And yeah, and sometimes it's, it gets difficult managing things and overfishing, uh, pollution and so on. The, um, plastic pollution, the river got blocked, and so stuff like that. So, <clears throat> and I mean, in general, people are just um, trying to make a living, and so they don't really care about what's in other people's backyard and so on. So, um, yeah, so I think as an Indonesian, I myself has uh, this desire that, um, yeah, they can change for the better, yeah. Christy, do you want to weigh in on that question as well around the environmental sustainability and leadership in Indian Ocean? Yeah, I'd absolutely love to. Um, when I guess, I guess to um, from a from a biological perspective, having the just to to link in with what Adi was talking about with Indonesia, um, some of the work that I do that is um, I guess outside of my PhD is around a lot of our migratory species. So partnerships with other countries are absolutely essential because we might put little boxes um, at which we would like to focus our time, our money, our management, and so on. But a lot of the species that I work with don't recognise that. So some of the um, blue whales that go past here, for example, including some of the ones that I actually personally saw when I was working on the survey of Sandpatch um, for the um, 
as part of the wave energy research, those, um, those pygmy blue whales are actually going to Indonesia. So they end up in the Banda Sea. So we absolutely need to work together. So some of the, some of the work that I've actually done in that part of Indonesia is about how we work together, but also applying some of the techniques that we might develop here able to be used in, in, in Indonesia as well. So, for example, if we just keep going with the blue whales, the, we can recognise those individually. And it's very, very simple. You need a half-decent camera, you need a bit of an understanding of behaviour and you need to be able to react quickly. Anyone can do that, no matter where they are, and contribute that information so that we can understand a population better and then we can work out what we need to do to make sure that that population can continue to do what they need to do. So those global partnerships are really important within the community, within um, sharing information with other research institutions is absolutely vital. And I think UWA is doing a really good job of that. That's great, thank you. Vipke, I have a question for you and it relates to the establishment of the Wave Energy Centre, which um, has not been without controversy. And I think I said this to you when we talked earlier. I, I, still, I, I still don't quite understand why Wave Energy is controversial, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and why the, the work of the centre is important. Sure. So... Um Back when Brenda actually asked me the question the first time, I snapped a bit and it was one of my pet peeves and she said I had to pace myself tonight. So, um, I said, so, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> um, so initially, this project was established in partnership with an industry partner that was Carnegie Clean Energy at the time. So I would like to uh, emphasize that the establishment of the research center was perfectly without any controversy. Um, and, you know, we're doing well. But obviously, the, uh, as, as everyone in the room would know, the industry partner went through some hardship. Um, so what has to be understood is that, you know, marine environments are harsh environments. Um, wave technology is still being developed. Uh, we're not talking about readily throwing something into the water and expecting it to work first time around. That would be very naive. Um, what we're looking at is a process um, that requires a lot of expertise, that requires a lot of time, and also money. And um, at the end of the day, um, the problem that was faced by the industry partner was a financial one, um, which had nothing to do with us. And um, so it, it is a matter of a lot of misinformation out there. And maybe, you know, I, I understand as, a, as an Albany resident myself, now obviously, yes, we do want the best for our region. I understand that there was a lot of disappointment attached to a project that promised a lot and that didn't deliver. Uh, I get that, but um, at the end of the day, we have to appreciate that this was a big ambition, a very ambitious project, um, and it, we just have to keep supporting these kind of endeavors, um, whichever industry partner it will be, um, and make sure that the process is being appreciated as generating a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge that will not only be applicable to wave energy, but to a lot of other areas, and I will use this platform for my very favorite example, and everyone who's listened to me a little longer will cringe, not Wi-Fi again. But, so Wi-Fi uh, was invented by astronomers who were looking at evaporating black holes, as you all do. And the thing with, so spoiler alert, no one has ever managed to observe an evaporating black hole. It is a prediction made by Einstein and Hawking's, and um, it is a teeny tiny signal in the 
cosmic crap that is out there. But in order to find a teeny tiny signal in the cosmic crap, what you need is very nifty routines. So what you do is you get the best computer programmers and astronomers and astrophysicists uh, around the same desk, I suppose, and establish these computing routines. And as you do that, you accidentally invent Wi-Fi, which does effectively that. You filter a lot of signals to come to one particular frequency that you're after. So Wi-Fi is still one of the biggest economic revenues of Australia. It's an Australian patent. Should be very proud of the fact that basic research into evaporating black holes led to something that is readily used by billions of people. Uh, we kind of have to adopt the same mindset here. We have to just give it a go, give it a bit of funding, give it a bit of time, and just embrace the fact that we're talking with a lot of skilled people um, who effectively drive innovation, because innovation doesn't happen if you sit people around the table and say, go innovate. And not a very good brief. Usually you need a tricky challenge, and people will come up with a lot of solutions, and, and that's what innovation really is about. And I've yeah. probably gone on a bit of a tangent, but it is no, my pet peeve. I mean, it, it is a bit about the exploration, isn't it? And you don't know what you're going to find until you start looking. And who knows where that could go. That's awesome. So you may have noticed we have a bit of a, a cosmopolitan panel. We have Indonesia, Germany, Swaziland, UK slash Australia. Christy came here when she was three months old. <laughs> Am I allowed to be an Aussie yet? The, the US and Canada, so, uh, which is awesome. One of the awesome things about universities. So I'm going to pose this question to you, Tabani. What attracted you to come here and do your research here? What was, because um, you're a long way from Swaziland. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I had the option to uh, go back to my university in Cape Town to do a PhD, but I had to turn that down for UWA. Uh, because uh, people at UWA are working on uh, renewable energy, and renewable energy is one of the hottest topics uh, these days. So I had no doubt that I'm working on something that is really interesting and that has um, a very big contribution to the world. And um, UWA is one of the best universities in the world. Of course, it is a top 100 university, so there's no doubt that a degree from UWA can take you anywhere. So that's how I came to UWA. That's wonderful. The, um, Kirsty, I have a question for you now. We strive to create pathways for alumni to get engaged in meaningful ways with the university, with the work of the university, research, teaching, etc. So when you look first in considering the, the big opportunities and challenges that you face in your work, and in light of those, if you could speak a bit about those and also about how people can get involved. Sure. Uh, I think um, I'm really glad to have had this question because um, I'm equally passionate about people as I am about the environment because we won't be able to make any difference or do any better if people don't care and aren't on board. In terms of um, opportunities, I don't think you could find literally anywhere in terms of the marine environment that is so exciting in terms of opportunities. We have a, an environment where not a lot has happened in terms of, I guess, negative impacts, comparatively speaking, in terms of, I guess, globally. 
Uh, so we've got, a good ch we've got a chance to do some really good things. But also, we've got some unbelievable diversity out there, unstudied diversity. So the opportunities are literally endless, really, really exciting. So the Great Southern Reef that you may or may not have heard of is largely, I guess, well, it is largely unstudied. Our offshore environment is full of species that sometimes um, are being observed for the first time. Um, and some of them are a surprise even to, even to cetacean scientists that have been working for a very long time in, uh, I guess, in the global sense as well. So we've got an amazing opportunity there. In terms of um, challenges, animals that like to pick themselves up, our grey, our grey nomads have got nothing on whales, like to pick themselves up and take themselves, you know, 8,000 kilometres one way and then 8,000 the other. That's really hard to study animals that do that. And then if they spend a lot of their time underwater as well, that makes it even more difficult. However, where there's a will, there's a way. So I guess coming up with the techniques to be able to make sense of that, to be able to provide really, really robust science and then being able to extend that information to other places is really exciting. In terms of how the community can become involved, we honestly can't do it without people because of those challenges such as the animals visiting other countries. We, we have to have those networks and we have to have those people. In terms of my own um, work, I mentioned, for example, um, blue whales in trekking up and down off uh, Sandpatch. Now, the initial desktop assessment that was done for that location actually described the site in terms of whales and dolphins. No, um, no threatened species, so that's your blue whales and your um, southern right whales. And us locals know that that's not quite the case. So in comes our community. Uh, we have a commercial fisherman within the, the network that I coordinate who every time he has seen a blue whale in the last 25 years has actually made a note of that. So sometimes as scientists we might say, well, we don't know anything, but generally we're having that view, um, I guess a bit of a narrow view in terms of university or government. But the community holds so much information and so much expertise and also can, can actually contribute. So in terms of the research that I am conducting for my PhD, being able to identify the individual dolphins so that you can look at the areas that are critical to them so we can actually make some better decisions about how we might manage ourselves um, or what we might do in those locations is really important. And I might not be, if I'm out here, um, say, for example, in Princess Royal Harbour, it's kind of handy that somebody else who walks their dog along the boat ramp in Oyster Harbour with a nice camera takes some photos and sends those to me. It is valid data and it actually does make a difference. So the community has an enormous opportunity to contribute in all kinds of science. Great. Um I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, just a just a little <laughs> note. So we talked about the you know the panel being from international backgrounds and um, other involvements than research into what we do. I think something else to appreciate is how multidisciplinary we are. I mean, we're in the same building. We're all broadly speaking marine science, but really we are talking about. So Tubani has a maths background, so mine is obviously. A bit <laughs> Bit colourful, um, and um, but at the end of the day, we're we're talking about um, you know we can sort of all work on the same project, but we come with this wealth of 
different disciplines and different trainings. And I guess any university, be it UWA or uh, whichever, take your, take your pick, obviously UWA, um, and, you know, you can study what rows you boat at the time and, and it might still lead to something where you are immersed in an environment with very different other backgrounds and disciplines, which is great. I personally find it very enriching. All right, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to open the floor to all of you in case you have any questions. So, final thoughts. What is the one thing that you would like people in this room to leave here tonight knowing, understanding about oceans, and or being motivated to do? So, Mark, I'll start with you. Okay, I'll go with um, the oceans are important, but they're also very complicated. Uh, so, lots of times when I talk to the public, they expect me to know a whole lot more than I actually know about it. Um, so, just when you think about it, just keep in mind all the complexities um, and how challenging it actually is to understand. Uh, for me, I guess it's reiterating um, my answer to the last question. Um, and that is, I would like you to go away knowing that you have a really, really important part to play in research. I think I'll go back to basics and say, um, look, don't think as science as being very isolated. Um, you, as, as Kirsty made very clear, you can be part of science without having a science degree, as long as you have a camera. Um, and, and that is sort of, you know, just be keen and, and chat to us. We, we tend to like to talk about our work anyway. Um, and, you know, science should not be just any, any particular gifted person can do it. Anyone can get involved. And we're part of that bigger picture of trying to, you know, cut back on a couple of stereotypes and debunk a couple of myths. Great. Adi? Um, yeah, speaking from my perspective, I mean, work as a wave energy researcher. So um, I think I would like to see that the community is optimistic about wave energy, like, it may happen someday in the future, and uh, and it <laughs> will. <laughs> it will, Adi. <laughs> it will happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, to think it another way, um, this fossil fuel will not last forever. So someday they will run out. And I'm not sure when, but yeah. And we will need something else to replace them. Tabani, you got a final thought you'd like to? Or are you too new? <laughs> All right, we're going to open the floor up to questions now. I'm, the one thing I should say is that we're recording this for podcasts, so you do need to speak into the microphone, otherwise your question won't get um, picked up. So Jennifer here has a microphone in her hand, so if you'd like to ask a question, just put your hand up and yeah. Um, yeah, just very interested about the pygmy blue whales. What, um, how big are they compared to like humpbacks and when do they come through? The pygmy blue whales, it's, the, it's a very, it's a very uh, inapt name, I guess. Um, the, the, the true blue or the Antarctic blue um, can be up to 30 metres long and the pygmy blues are around 25 metres. So you certainly, you certainly know whether you, when you've seen one. Uh, the earliest I have seen one off our coast here uh, is the 17th of February and the latest um, is late June. Um, so they're a they're a autumn autumn migrator when they're coming past Albany. That was easy. <laughs> um, my question, I think, is for Mark. Um, the possibility of a an artificial surf reef off the coast in Albany. I'm just wondering if there's potentially any negative environmental impact 
from an artificial surf reef that could be um, put off our coastline? Yeah, so anytime you put anything in the ocean, there's always the possibility for negative effects. I've been involved a little bit with peer review on that project, and so I'm trying to do my best to look through the consultant's work and make sure it all adds up, and if it does go through, that it's a well-designed reef and there's not coastal impacts. Um, but anytime you put anything in the coast, um, go back to it's complicated. Uh, there can be unforeseen consequences, um, so just trying to manage it as best possible. And if I could just weigh in on that one too, um, that's, where, that's where really good data and really good um, baseline information comes in. If we have that, we have a much better opportunity, just I guess from a biological perspective, in, in making good decisions. But that's where um, making sure there's a rigorous process is really important. So considering things like seagrass, um, in terms of whales and dolphins, for example, even just the um, construction phase, it's not necessarily that we might not do it, but we might choose a different time of year, for example. We might not do it in the middle of winter when there are carving southern rights in the sound. So all of those kinds of parts of the process are really important to make sure that the impacts are not um, unacceptable. Thanks very much for your presentation tonight. What I'd like to know is, I mean, we're a small country city in a very isolated part of the world. How much credibility do you think it offers to the city of Albany to be doing this research and publishing this in the eyes of the, the academia of, of the rest of the world? Yeah, <coughs> I'll, thank you. I'll cop that one. Um, <laughs> look, we work, it is a process, you know, we're, we're not sugarcoating this. It, um, it, for the last one and a half years of really having a presence down here, we've been working quite hard on making sure that people like ourselves who come down here um, have the opportunity to contribute to academic research and also um, participate in academic exchange almost as much as our co-workers and colleagues up in Perth can. Um, so, I mean, as, as you published, it, it sort of doesn't matter whether you're from, from a regional place or a metropolitan place, but in terms of how much you're immersed in the academic environment, that, that's a big difference. And when I first arrived, I thought it was a, a ridiculously scenic campus, but also very cute. Um, so it is a huge difference as to how much you're actually exposed to international visitors, um, seminars. So we've um, we've sort of left our mark um, on these processes and made sure that there's more exchange. And for the centre itself, we've gone back to the drawing board um, in, in terms of our travel budget and made sure that all of us are being encouraged to have a very active exchange with our colleagues in Perth. And through that, we're just um, trying to effectively from our publication record, sort of remove any bias that there might be, um, and on the positive, put Albany on the map and really making sure that data is being collected here, and Albany is now part of a very active research environment, which will expand to more research being done on the, on the Great Southern Reef um, and the, the whole coastline, coastal processes. Yeah, I'll jump in too. It's quite interesting publishing that there's all these different places that show up in the literature that you may have not have ever been, but it's um, this kind of community where, you know, we can collect data out here and it can go to a whole host of um, broad scale issues they're facing around the world. So I'm collecting data on how the waves wash up and down the beach on um, the Sandpatch coastline, and then we're comparing that with wave data offshore and numerical modeling to make a really great data set for understanding these waves. And it's a problem that's being faced in a lot of different areas around the world where, you know, in the past everything was done on sandy beaches and we're, now we're getting to the phase of trying to understand these complex environments. 
So work we might do here and publish could be picked up by someone in Scotland or the US or anywhere. And then all of a sudden they're looking at data from Albany and that's kind of cool. Can I just ask a, uh, it's not an Albany loyal question, but about tidal energy, the, the astonishing tides up north have always seemed to be a no-brainer. Um, you know, you've got free pumped up energy, if you like. What's the problem? Why aren't we seeing wave, this wave energy as a major development? I'm, I'm assuming it's cost, but is that the issue? Yeah, well, maybe a little bit of history might... Uh, shed some, some insight. Well, the modern wave energy research started in the 70s and that was triggered by the oil crisis. So, and then there was a boom of activities all over the world, um, fundamental results on um, how much energy we can get from the wave actually. But then as the oil price declined in the early or mid 80s, then activities was, was becoming less and less and it was it was um, maybe around over, over 10 years of legal activities. So there is a research gap there <clears throat> and people trying like reinventing the wheel again. Yeah, I don't know. Much of this is maybe politically driven. We may need something like an oil, another oil crisis to get us, you know, <laughs> thinking and yeah. I, I think also, I mean, with, with the success of wind as a comp competitor, and, and solar, then, um, yeah, I mean, why why bother about wave, right? So, um, if it is too costly, so, um, yeah, but but I think that there are advantages that wave energy has that wind and solar doesn't have. Um, it's more stable, it's more energy dense, <clears throat> so you don't need a big space to get the same amount of energy. And, um, yeah, so, I think I think in the end we need. I mean, th th there won't be a single solution, but all these different renewables must work together. But yeah. tidal, why not? Well, I'm not very um, knowledgeable about tidal in in Australia, but uh, maybe somebody, somebody else. Who wants taking it? The problem with Tidal in Australia is that the resources are actually far away to where they could be used. And so uh, in Western Australia, you need power in Perth, and the Tidal resources are 2,000 kilometers up north. So there is a complexity as well in connecting these resources to the grid and bring the energy to where basically it needs to be used. And so that's part of the, process because, uh, of the problem because that adds a lot of cost. Uh, to the whole uh, and is the initial the initial investment in, in some form of damming or containment also a problem? The expense of that exercise. I understand what you're saying about yeah. transmission of energy and bringing it and so on. But is is the, there a problem with just the in, initial infrastructure being very expensive? It's not overly uh, expensive. I mean, it, the, the cost of tidal energy is, uh, is uh, much more than offshore wind energy at the moment, for instance, but it's still a bit lower than uh, what wave would be because the technology has advanced a bit more. The problem with tidal as well, there is much more environmental impact that you've got with wave, and so that requires a lot of research still, you know, in terms of the fish population and the habitat and so on. Uh, and after, um, investment cost, you know, infrastructure cost, it really depends on the condition of where you are and so on. A lot of the uh, tidal development is made in Canada and in Scotland at the moment. 
uh, especially in very narrow uh, straits where basically you've got acceleration of the velocity of water and so then you can produce a lot of energy rapidly. Uh, but I think uh, Adi made a very good point. When it comes to density, waves have much more potential than tidal. And I think, and again, the very important things to acknowledge is that the future of energy is not going to be one solution or one thing, one technology replacing the other. It's going to be a mix of many different technologies. And the ratio between the different technologies is going to depend basically of the local and the geographic you know, particularities. And so, and wave, we are convinced, uh, will have an important role to play into that. So, um, I'd just like to acknowledge Christophe Godin, who's the head of the uh, school for the Oceans Graduate School, and France, to add to our country yeah. mix. Nobody <laughs> 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 I think, unless someone else has, do we have one more? Oh, there's a couple, oh my goodness. <laughs> I just want to ask a question. Has anyone seen much of dolphins surfing? Um, where were we when we saw them? Off the wind farm, that's right. We went and looked at the edge and the waves were coming in, so were dolphins, and then they'd go out and come back on the next wave and the next wave and the next wave. It was fabulous to see. These, it was like seeing a bunch of school kids having the time of their life. And it was really, really good. Perhaps we should tether them and make them work and generate. But, <laughs> I was wondering, you said that they can't go anywhere else, that, you know, major uh, creature in the, in the whole environment. But uh, is that just because it's in their nature not to travel anywhere or can they do like a whale and they can move fast? But that was my thought when you mentioned that. Mm. Uh, it's a really good question and the answer is, to borrow Mark's term, is complicated. Um, so nearshore dolphin populations um, vary enormously and the, I guess, main reason for that um, is environmental. So it, it depends on where they are as to um, how much they might have. You can imagine all those basics, like how much food you have, um, protection from predators, all those really important things um, determine how the, how the community actually um, uses its space. So in the harbours here, it's looking, it is looking quite complicated because we have three species that use the harbours a lot and then we have an incredible diversity on top of that that we only see on the odd occasion. In terms of the ones that are here a lot of the time, um, one of those species looks to be seasonal. So it, the, that particular species, so these are common dolphins, they come in, um, they seem to be coming in um, during um, autumn and winter, along with um, our muleys and our salmon and so on. So those, so that population is quite different to um, our two bottlenose species that use the harbours. And in other parts of Australia, um, particularly um, Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, do tend to have really high site fidelity. So they do tend to stay in the same location 
pretty much all the time. And certainly that's, um, that's what, I mean, I'm in the very, very beginning of, um, of my study, but certainly that's what looks, looks to be happening here. So there are a couple of spots in Princess Royal Harbour, for example, that um, the dolphins use very, very often. So you can imagine um, that what we might do in those areas can have an enormous impact. But even in terms of seasonal animals, things that we might, uh, impacts that might occur here are then felt in real, in, in, an, in a really wide geographical area. So if we have, say, for example, those seasonal common dolphins that I was talking about, those might have um, a really, really broad home range. So you can see dessert is being served. Um, I'm going to, I think we'll have to wrap things up, but we will uh, encourage you to continue to ask questions as you have dessert, and these people aren't going anywhere, they'll still be here. Uh, please join me in thanking the panel.